Hi, I'm Jess Binneth. And I'm Kate Montague. And you're listening to the AudioCraft podcast. But in this episode, we're mixing it up a bit and sharing some audio from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. This session was recorded at their 2017 festival, and it's called Bringing Together Narrative and News. Lisa Tobin, the executive producer of audio at the New York Times, discusses what this team of journalists has learnt and unlearnt while making The Daily. Hello. So I'm going to start this whole presentation with a caveat that uh, I know that the New York Times is a very particular organization and that some of the things that we talk about don't apply more broadly because the, the institution is so unique. But that said, I am going to start by talking about the organization because it's actually out of, um, it's the fact that we started in audio operation at this in this unusual space that I think led to the creation of this form that we're going to talk about, the narrative and the news together. Um, so when I started the Times, uh, it was about a year and three months ago. So we we're three months out from the election exactly when I came in, August of 2016. And I actually imagined that we would be largely a narrative operation. The thing that seemed most exciting to me about coming into the Times was the stories that were there, the, the sorts of stories that we as audio journalists and storytellers and producers are constantly searching for. The place was just filled with them, more than we could possibly know what to do with, and it seemed like this was what the Times had to offer, was we could just take our pick of the best of the best stories at the New York Times and spend months bringing them to life as these beautiful, highly produced narrative series. So I came in from this narrative perspective. But then, two men entered my life, uh, this man to the, to the right, and our new president-elect. And I would say that nothing clarifies a mission like the 2016 election, because essentially overnight, the idea of spending eight months producing a series about Venezuela, or whatever it might be, seemed a little bit absurd to be in this institution and be focused in that way. And so, not only did it feel that, there was, that the news had such a significance and so much that needed to be explored, I think it was sort of an existential moment for us in the media where it felt as if it wasn't perhaps being explored as thoroughly as need be. I think Michael could speak to that as a journalist who had been at the Times for 11 years and who covered the campaign. We had this intense feeling that we needed to be covering things differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that the form of news had, in a sense, failed us, and I was a political reporter at the Times covering a lot of the major debates and primary nights and events, and as Lisa and I were beginning to conceive of what the future of an audio project might be after the campaign, we talked about how just news, just the form of traditional news, felt insufficient for the moment, that the stories were just kind of washing over us, they didn't explore things in enough, in enough depth, that, that there's just a, a kind of a problem with just dwelling in the world of, of straight news. And so that's actually, that's, that's where the, the, the idea and the, um, the push for us, the motivation behind the idea of narrative daily news came from. A team of people who came into the Times excited about doing narrative audio, who hadn't been particularly interested in making daily news, suddenly found ourselves in this particular newsroom at this particular moment. And the news felt too big to ignore, and we felt like we needed to do something differently. So that all sounds great, right? Um, we're a team on a mission in a place where there's lots to be done. But the problem is that there are 1,300 journalists in that newsroom, but not one of them is an audio storyteller. 
So how do you make a daily news show in narrative form, whatever that means, and how do you do it with 1,300 journalists who don't know how to do audio? And the lessons learned in figuring that out, I think sort of somewhat by accident, led to something of a new form that we are calling narrative news. And so what is that? The way that we're talking about it is applying the principles of the narrative form with its pacing, its suspense, character development, the moral stakes, and the exploration of ideas to the news of the day. Obviously, there's a spectrum of news to narrative, and that depends on the story that, we're, that you're taking on and the news of the day, but always applying in some way the principles of narrative. So to start, I'm just going to play an example that I think is the sort of the most simplistic version of what that means to apply narrative to a straight-ahead news story, um, and we'll go from there. Hey. Hey. Sorry, so I got the folks here at Kinko's to let me use the phone. How did you do that? I told them I needed to call the office. <laughs> but the problem is I got my laptop on the other side of Kinko's here. I'm afraid some Russian spy is going to take it, so i got to keep my eyes on it. Michael Schmidt called us from the only landline he could find. So, Mike, what did you find? So Comey gets fired on Tuesday. I go in the office 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning. We're just trying to figure out what the heck happened and mm -hmm. start making some calls early. And, you know, folks who knew Comey are up, and they're all spun up, obviously, about what happened. And mm -hmm. they, we're just trying to figure out what happened here. Why, why did this happen? Do they know why this happened? And they say, this guy says, well, there's this dinner. I said, what do you mean there's this dinner? He said, there's this dinner that Comey had at the White House with Trump. I said, well, what was it? Well, I don't know everything about it. Well, it starts getting a little squirrely. I said, well, you got to tell me more. you got to tell me more. And basically throughout the rest of the day, what I figure out is that seven days after Trump was sworn in, Comey gets summoned to the White House by Trump for dinner, one-on-one -on -one dinner. They start chit-chatting, talking, you know, crowd sizes, election stuff. No one's in the room, no aides, only servers. Trump turns to Comey and says, do I have your loyalty? Mm -hmm. And Comey says, you have my honesty. So this is just a phone call, right? This is just a phone call between Michael and this investigative reporter, Mike Schmidt, who's just gotten this huge scoop. But the front page story at the Times that day, of course, says James Comey asked by President Trump for pledge of loyalty. That is the headline. The inverted pyramid, that's where it starts in the traditional, you know, th this is the definition of a breaking news story. But that is not what you're hearing from Mike Schmidt, right? You have Mike Schmidt on the phone and we have characters. We have Mike Schmidt is, immediately establishes himself as a character on the phone. <laughs> um, he's got some guy at Kinko's is this sort of unseen character in the room who's, who's allowed him to use the phone. We've got two men in a room together. There's a wait staff. There's a sense of mystery. There's a sense of tension. And it's, it's just a phone call. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is like basically how do you establish the rules of narrative into news in a way that I think what we, what we found is an unscripted form of narrative. We've stumbled on that by accident, essentially, by being in this place where we're not going to script with, with reporters. We don't have reporters who can script. And so we have to do a ton of upfront thinking and planning to get a narrative out of something that at the end of the day is unscripted. 
and that you can turn around in a day because at the, it's, a, it's a daily news show. So even if we did have the capacity in these reporters to do scripted narrative, there's just no way to get that done um, with the ambition of narrative in one day. And so unscripted narrative is what we're calling this thing we've stumbled on. And so how do you get something like that out of Mike Schmidt? And then that goes all the way on the spectrum of news to narrative to how do you essentially turn around something that resembles a documentary in a day or two? Um, and so uh, the, 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 the conversation between Michael and somebody else is essentially like the building block of the show, I would say. That's the spine, the DNA. Every single show has a conversation at its heart. And the ambition of that can vary from a phone call with a reporter to something that, that, that sounds more like what we're used to as, as documentary form. But ultimately, it's, it's figuring out how to get what you need out of a conversation like that that, that leads to these unscripted narratives. And so we're going to just walk through a couple examples of a couple days in the in news over the last few months since the show started and talk about what was going on in the news, what was going on in the world, and why did we do things the way we did on those particular days. And as I said, we don't have the luxury of figuring out the story. Um, we don't have the time. Uh, as you do in a scripted narrative, to say, okay, I think I know what I'm after. I'm going to go out in the field, I'm going to get my tape, and then I'm going to come back and figure out what my story is, and then I'm going to write it. So that upfront work, the thinking that goes into what you're going to get out of the conversation before you go into the conversation is ultimately the most important part of the process for us, which I think is, is, is different from what I'm used to, and I imagine what, what most of us are used to, is that the conversation ahead of the conversation with the guest or, or whoever it is that's going to be on the show is essential. And so our team comes together around, we go to the 9.30 news meeting and then we get together around 10 a.m. every morning and we'll often spend two hours in a room just talking and machinating over the news of the day and trying to make sense of what are the questions that we have about what's going on? What are the ideas that we're thinking about? What are the stories that could be told? What could, wh where is the narrative in all of this? And if we can't find anything that resembles question, idea, or story, we basically, we're, we're not gonna touch it in the form of narrative. That's the headlines at the end of the show when you hear those, that's, that's sort of the stuff that, here's, all you really need to know is what happened. Mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not the space of narrative. So we're looking for where are the questions, where are the ideas, where are the stories? And it's those conversations in the room that often lead to that. And what we're really kind of driving at is what is your actual human interest in this moment? What are you wondering about? What do you think you kind of understand, but you don't really fully understand it? I think a lot of us in news, um, reporters and editors, in addition to readers, think we know a lot when we, that there's so much assumed knowledge in a news story where it's, it's the latest evolution of a thing, it's the latest iteration of the story, and that assumes that you know everything that came before it. But I think so often we don't really understand that context. And so it's also about being really honest about what do you actually not understand here? What are the, who in this, you know, which of these players do you actually not know who that person is that we're talking about? And without knowing who that is, how can you possibly understand what this all means? Um, what is the history of this country, of this story, of this what it, whatever it might be that you would need to know in order to understand the larger, the, the latest, uh, the latest development in this story? And so that's what we're pushing at when we're in these conversations together. And so this story, of course, in early October, there was a mass shooting in Las Vegas that killed 58 people. And we're in the room the morning after the shooting, and we're talking. And I think as a team of people who did not come in to do daily news, who did not think we were coming in to do daily news. These are the sorts of stories that no one's all that excited about. 
because what else is there to say when something like this happens? You have to talk about it. Of course, it's a big deal. It's, it's horrible. But it's hard to say anything new when these sorts of things happen beyond the details of the, the particularities of that particular incident. And so that ended up being the thing that we were grappling with. Um, that ended up being what started to feel meaningful to us. And that was the question that we arrived at is, why is there always talk about gun control after shootings, but nothing ever changes? Why are we having the same conversation over and over and over again? Okay, so that's a question, but we, we certainly don't have the answer to that, right? But we know that that's what we're interested in. So that's where we're starting. We're following our genuine interest and frustrations in the room. And a reminder is, you know, that by the time we arrive at that question, it's probably 11.30 a.m. and we have to turn around a show tomorrow. That's a pretty big question to ask in a daily show. So then we look in the archives and we figure out who we have in our universe at the New York Times who might be able to help us answer that question. And to expand that out, you know, this is where we landed is Robert Draper, and, that, and that's, a, that's a, a writer for the magazine, but the, the, these kinds of people are out in the world. It, the, yes, it helps that they work at the institution that we work at, but certainly um, these sorts of conversations can be had, um, can be found beyond, beyond the walls of the institution or within our institution, but from the outside, obviously, coming in. Um, so, so we have this idea that we have this question, and we have this idea that Robert Draper, who's written this story four years ago, probably after another horrific mass shooting, um, may have an answer in the form of the NRA. So he's written this story called Inside the Power of the NRA. And we're thinking, it seems like what we're talking about here is some effort on the part of the NRA after these shootings that sort of ensures that nothing changes, even though there's all this talk of gun control. So what we do next is we get on the phone with Robert Draper, because you can read the story, but it's a lot different than having a conversation with a person who has a bunch of knowledge in their head and who knows what's actually interested. Basically, we present to him what we're interested in. We say, here's the question we're grappling with, and we suspect you know more than we do about what the answer might be. And, and what he tells us is far different than what he put in his story. And so it's about tapping into people's knowledge and, um, and into their sensibilities, but, but coming at it with, with real intention that doesn't necessarily resemble you know, something that they've written about in the past. And so we're having this conversation with him, and he says, oh yeah, the NRA has a playbook. Every single time there's a shooting, they kick into action with a in a very clear way. And so he, I'm gonna get a little out of order and play what, this is essentially what he told us on the phone, which ends up showing up in the show. And this clip starts right Jim after the Columbine shooting. Students still working out with their weight belts on, but uh, see a lot of tears. Perhaps now America would wake up to the dimensions of this challenge and we could prevent anything like this from happening again. The first thing they do is a seemingly nothing, which is to remain silent. Our words and our behavior will be scrutinized more than ever this morning. Those who are hostile towards us will lie in wait to seize on a soundbite out of context, ever searching for an embarrassing moment to ridicule us. Knowing so. that any statement is uh, probably not going to do any good, could, in fact, do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. 
What they will be doing instead during that period is checking to see what the political headwinds are, hearing whatever feedback they may be getting from, say, Republican leaders. If they begin to say to them, for example, this is going to be tough for us to just stay silent on, we may actually have to consider some legislation. Then the NRA begins to go into action, but it does so quietly at first. Its first step is to mount a membership drive, to send out newsletters saying your Second Amendment rights are under attack yet again by a disingenuous Congress that wants to take away your firearms. Never fight if you can avoid it. But when you must fight, don't lose. And when nothing less than freedom is at stake, we fight. So he goes on and on like this, and he, he you know, it, it, it leads to this realization, essentially, that there's all this pressure that gets, that gets put on congressmen and women, and they're just not willing to, to deal with that pressure, and they back down immediately. Whatever calls for gun control, um, they, you, you've heard, they sort of quietly you know, fade away, and there we are again until the next mass shooting, next round. And so we're, we're, we're writing down our notes from our conversation with Robert, and we're, this is the, the actual story outline from the conversation on the phone with him. And you'll see that that playbook comes, we're trying to figure out the structure of our show. So we, we get off our conversation with Robert on the phone, and we don't put the playbook at the top, right? That's, that's the thing that becomes really interesting to us and starts to answer the question. But that is, that is we're going to go on a journey before we get there. And so what else do you need to know in order to understand the power of that? Well, you need to know that the NRA started as a hunting club, that it was, that it was in the 60s that it turns into a lobbying group actually in response to um, initial gun control legislation that comes out of this wave of civil unrest, the protests in the 60s, some high-profile assassinations. There's a gun control act that uh, Johnson puts into place, and in response to that, the NRA basically turns itself from a hunting club into a lobbying group, power builds, and then we come to these mass shootings, and that's when the playbook kicks into action. And so it's 12, 12 or so minutes into the show that we're gonna actually get to the playbook, the, the answer to the question that we actually started out with. And then the thing that really blows our mind is where Robert goes next, which is we've learned this, this, we've learned this fact about the playbook, we've learned of its existence, and then Michael has the natural next question, so to go back to the 1960s and bring this mm-hmm. full circle, an organization that became politicized in the first place in response to the assassinations of these giant figures like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy solidified power in response to these modern mass shootings. Yes, the NRA as we know it today really came into being as a direct result of violence in America and legislators' attempts Hmm. to do something about that violence. Before then, the NRA was a quiet, not-so-large organization mainly devoted to hunting. The NRA as we know it today is an NRA that was born out of the violence, gun violence in America. Thank you, Robert. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Michael. So the big idea that comes out of that conversation with Robert is that mass shootings actually make the NRA stronger. And that's not, a, that's not something we knew going into that conversation with Robert. We knew what we wanted to find out. We knew, we knew the question we had. And Robert provided not just something of an answer, but a, a completely unexpected new idea for us and an answer that felt ultimately very satisfying to the question of, you know, why is there this sense that things are going to change and then they don't? And Robert had a, had a real answer to that question. 
And so that is, it was ultimately ended up being the segment one of, um, of, of the show the following day. Um, it feels like a very, it felt like a very true, um, true realization of, of the real questions we have on, on a day like that. And, and then we were able to sort of deliver in the form of this answer. And that is something that we turned around in a day. So ultimately, when we're going back to the conversation with Mike Schmidt and that phone call, that is a, a more simplistic version of this. But what we, what we did in that conversation with Robert was a ton of work in a short amount of time by having that phone call with him of figuring out what's the story here. And then we go in and we write a set of questions that are gonna unfold that in a way that, that, that will resemble a narrative. We're gonna start with history, we're gonna move through time, we're gonna arrive at this playbook, we're gonna talk about the response to mass shootings and, how, um, and what we've seen over and over and over again, and then we're gonna land on this big idea. But that's, we, we know that's the journey we're gonna go on, so we've written a set of questions so that what we get out of Robert is actually exactly what we need, right? So, so when we're done with that conversation with him, we actually have a narrative already, an unscripted narrative. And then it's just a matter of bringing it to life and getting a producer, you know, it's a two, it, that was a two-person operation in a day, that, that making that, sh that segment. And so one producer is cutting the conversation with Robert, um, you know, it's, it's maybe 35-minute mm -hmm. conversation down to a 15-minute conversation. The other person is pulling tape of, you know, historical archive tape of, of the shootings and of, of, um, of, the, of uh, you know, MLK, the MLK assassination, and bringing that to life as the other producers cutting. But but it was you know it's, it was a in in 12 hours that that had gone from an, a question we were asking to a to a segment on the show. Right, and the title of this presentation is the marriage of narrative and news. And I think what the Daily tries to do every day, and I hope it's working, is is ask ourselves how can we tell you a story that is very much grounded in the news, but is not of the news in that incremental sense. I mean, all around us that day, including in the pages of the New York Times, was a, was a pretty traditional unfolding of, of a mass shooting. Who is the shooter? What's his profile? What gun did he use? And we see our mandate as finding the narrative within that news. And I think the answer on this day was, half of the answer was the NRA and Robert Draper telling us the story in such a fulsome way, and I think it's one of the, th the lessons I think Lisa has taught me and made essential to the daily is that a story like that can't start in the middle. The beginning of that story is the beginning of the National Rifle Association and its evolution, and the end point is the playbook. And getting everybody involved in that whole process to agree that there's a journey and an arc to that story is, I think, what distinguishes this concept of narrative news. So that was segment one that day, but we had one other question that we were all talking about in that room, and that was, what's it like to be a gun store owner who sells a gun to someone who uses it in a mass shooting? And inside of that question, we were, we were talking about, you know, to, to your point about um, what kind of gun did he use, these kinds of questions that are circulating, we all had this question of like, why does anyone buy a gun like that for anything other than this? When we're talking about these machine guns, like what is we, a genuine curiosity that we wanted to pose to somebody who actually knows the answer in a really sophisticated way would be a gun store owner. They're gonna be able to directly answer the question that we had, which is what do you do with that gun other than it's not a hunting rifle, it's not a handgun, what do you do with a machine gun? And so it was a real question we had and we went looking for a gun store owner and I won't tell you too much about who we found because narrative suspense, but um, 
but I'm going to show you the Google Doc of the questions that we wrote in advance for this particular gun store owner. And so this, too, I think, when we have these conversations with, with real people, we're also looking for what's the narrative in this conversation. What's the, what's the story that we're going to tell, and who, wh how do we go on this journey with this person in a way that's, that's a natural human conversation? So the gun store owner is obviously unaware that we have a set of questions for him that are going to unfold in a way that we hope takes the listener on a real journey. But actually, the way that they're being written is is, is much more closely resembles a natural human conversation than when you get a gun store owner on the phone and say, like, hey, what was it like to uh, sell a gun to somebody who used it in mass shooting? That's not how we start conversations with anybody. But it is definitely how I would have started the conversation had I not met Lisa Tobin. Um, <laughs> so, and, and obviously that's gonna get a particular kind of response from, from a person who doesn't, who that's not how people want to be spoken to. And so everybody wins in this equation when you have conversations with, when you, when you set out to have a sort of a narrative conversation with, with a real person, which is that, that you're gonna get something far more rich out of somebody if you, if you, if you have a conversation that resembles a natural human conversation, and um, they're gonna appreciate that, and I think we've found people really open up in that form, but you're also, for the listener and for the purposes of, of telling an important story, you're gonna go on a journey that may have the narrative tensions and twists that, that, we, are, that we are looking for. And so we started with this question, can you tell me about your store? And I just want to be clear that this is the first thing you heard. So there's been no introduction. The show, you know, we come back from ad break, and the first thing you hear is this. So we have not told you nearly anything. Hello, and I know why you're calling. Hey, is this John? Yeah. Hey, it's Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. Okay, bye. John, can you tell me about your store? Maybe just describe it to me. You're talking about the gun shop? Yeah. Uh, we already had a number of shops in the area, so I decided I didn't want to sell the same thing they did, which was all hunting equipment. And so I started out by selling tactical equipment, like uh, AR-15s or long-range rifles. I mean, I sold rifles that uh, could shoot a mile. I sold $10,000 rifles. I sold $5,000 wow. guns. I sold the upper end. So right away, he's told us so much. He told us he's a gun store owner. We didn't tell, tell anyone that. He, he, he just supplies that information out of the gate. Um, he tells us that he sells the exact kind of weapons that we're interested in, high-end machine guns. Why is anyone buying those? So we have met John Markell, the owner of this store, and he has very quickly established himself as a person who the day after the Las Vegas shooting, you can imagine why you might be hearing from this person, but we don't know where we're going, right? So it's feeling relevant. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the sense that, that I'm hearing from this person for a reason, but I don't know what that reason is yet. So the, the, the conversation continues. If you could sell anything, why is it a gun? Like, why'd you open a gun store? Um, I'm sure that was an interesting answer from John. Um, you know, he, we get him to describe the store. What types of guns do you sell? How many guns do you sell in a year? What's your favorite gun? And then we get to this question that we were actually starting, you know, that, that we came, where, where, our, where our interest came, came from, which is why would anyone buy that type of gun? So... So here's a question that I've been wondering about, knowing that I would be talking to you. I feel like I understand why people buy handguns, and I also understand why people buy hunting rifles to hunt. But I feel like I don't understand as well why people buy 
these kind of higher powered guns. And it sounds like you carry some of those weapons. Oh, I carry a lot of them. But you can't even hunt with but them. But why? Why do people buy that sort of gun? It, oh, just for fun. That's all. Just for what do you? Do you have any idea how much fun it is to take one out at a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four, even five hundred yards, and shoot with that? So we actually all found that very unexpected and interesting. Like the the true answer was because it's fun, and that that felt like a satisfying answer. That was something that everybody was struggling to understand. What is what? Why are these guns in the world if not to be used for destructive purposes? Because they're really fun to shoot. So that's and that is from the mouth of a man who knows. So the conversation continues. Um, so when someone buys a gun like that, what do you imagine they're doing with it? Having fun with it. Um, and this is where. I think something sort of interesting happens is we say, what's the process of selling a gun like that to someone? But then we turn it and it becomes about Michael. So if I wanted to buy a gun, can I buy that machine gun from you? And I think it's a very small move to say, to, to make that personal, but it does a lot when, with the sort of like building of a human relationship and, and telling a story where there are characters involved is like, let's, let's, let's make this less of a conversation in which this guy feels like he's, he's talking to a journalist and more of a conversation in which two people are just talking. John, what's the process? Well, if, if I walk into a store, me, Michael Barbaro, yeah. and I want to buy an assault rifle or something like a machine gun, what happens? Well, First thing that happens is we size the person up. You have any idea? You have any idea how much how many sales we've lost just because we refused to sell the gun? Hmm. Something didn't smell right. We get lots of mad people. I mean, I, I, we've seen some really squirrely people. We just felt so. We just didn't feel right selling it, and with nothing other than a feeling to go on. And how often does that happen? So here we've learned that, well, that's the second use of squirrely in the presentation, um, but I guess. Here we've learned that, that, that a gun store owner actually uses their own judgment in selling guns. That's news to me. And then I just want to be, you know, a lot of this you're seeing that things are unfolding more or less as we hoped they would. The, the script is kind of working. The questions are sort of working. But then inevitably with real people, surprises come. Oh, uh, weekly? Monthly? Hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's it, it literally probably cost me twenty thousand dollars of what we turned down. But so say and, say I pass the 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 kind of John visual okay, test. They're going to do they're going to do, do two background checks. One's federal and one's state. Okay, we don't move until we hear them say yes. And does that take some time? Uh, for two thirds, it doesn't. For a third, it does. So it sounds like I could walk out with an assault rifle on the same day? You can, in 15 minutes, because it's not the weapon. The weapon's a tool, no different than an axe. I mean, it's how you use it. I sold a gun. I I mean, I wish I hadn't. The woman committed suicide, and she did it in our parking lot because she said she didn't want her children to find her. I just want to pause, and and this was such a such a shattering moment in the interview. He's just told us, he's just volunteered to us that he sold a, a gun to a woman who walked down into the parking lot and, and killed herself in the parking lot. And I think one of the discoveries that certainly I've had as a, as a print journalist about this idea of narrative news is that th- this, this kind of pacing and unfolding of an interview where there's, there's suspense and there's slowness and there's a journey is not only, is not only an incredibly powerful way to discover news, 
it's also just the most respectful possible way to talk to a person. And I think that you see this interview, as you hear this interview, you're hearing us showing him a lot of respect for his career and his, his craft. He thinks of it as a craft, his judgment. And no matter what you feel about guns and gun control and a gun store owner, he is deeply human and he feels human. Otherwise, why would he be telling the New York Times about a moment that seems to very much question the, the very thing he does. It was on his mind. He, was, he wasn't feeling like you feel when the first question you get, which is very much what print journalism tradition is, John Markell, hi, I'm Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. Uh, I'm calling you because I want to know what it's like to sell guns that are used in mass shootings. I mean, the whole dynamic changes with this, and it's been very, very eye-opening for me. But as it turns out, he, he knows what it's like to sell a gun to someone in a mass shooting. And that is information that we have deliberately chosen to withhold. And so we're about seven minutes into a conversation with him before Michael asks him, so tell me about the gun that you sold on March 13th, 2007, which is the, the gun that was used in the Virginia Tech shooting. When did you first hear about the, the shooting, the Virginia Tech shooting? Well, it happened on a Monday. Well, you got to understand, I was listening... For the whole, from the whole thing, the news from the very beginning, one person was killed in the dorm. Then there's two. Then a long, long gap, or seemed like it was a long gap, and then we hear there's 10, there's 15. It just kept going up and up, and I kept thinking, my God, it's got to stop. Hmm. And I had to deal with the ATF immediately, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. We didn't know it was us until ATF told us it was. And the only reason they knew is because he kept the receipt in his backpack. Hmm. So this is a man who, who experienced the Virginia Tech shooting just like the rest of us, who was horrified by the numbers that are stacking up and then discovers, you know, hours later that that, that, that gun came from his store. But we have, we have taken a long time to get there. And, um, and Michael and... and, and, and John grapple with what that felt like and how he made sense of that for, for several more minutes. Um, Michael then asks him what happened to sales at his shop. And there's another unexpected moment where he says, um, basically, they went through the roof. And this has a really powerful echo back to segment one, where we're hearing basically in reaction to these the, to events like these, there's a there's a there's a solidification around gun culture. There's a there's a support behind it that 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 even like takes the form of people driving from miles away to come to this man's gun store to buy guns from him instead of from the gun store nearby as a sign of solidarity with this man. So this comes as a real surprise. And then finally, we get to the final question, and I would say this is a question where we had. We were not sure what we were looking for. We were just looking for a big, like a, a th an idea from him to go out on a thought. And we said it's been 10 years since the shooting. Obviously, Las Vegas has just has just taken place with every mass shooting that's happened since. What goes through your mind? I want to ask you, John, about about the period since Virginia Tech. Every time there's a mass shooting, and there are mass shootings now many times a year in the in the United States. Let's take the examples of what happened in Orlando or what just happened in Las Vegas. I, I want to understand what goes through your mind. Anytime I, see, I hear about a shooting, same thing goes through yours. There's no difference. And I think that's a, that's a sort of open for interpretation answer. The same mm. thing that goes through your mind, there's no difference. How can that be? You sell guns. Yet the moral ambiguity of that is actually quite lovely. 
awful, lovely, but but just real. And I think I think when we 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 had this idea that we wanted that came that was also born out of the election that people when we have conversations with people let's let's not use them as props let's use them as people and let's let people figure out um, through the process of hearing their story why you're hearing their story and why 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 that person is talking in this moment and I think this is a good example of that because because um, uh, obviously it, it becomes clear why we chose this particular gun store owner but it's a it's a person first and it, and it ends up being a lot more than that it ends up being yes that's that's an that's a um, particularity of his story, but it ends up being a conversation with a person who it sort of feels like we should be hearing from in this moment, who we should get to know as a person in this moment as we're trying as a culture to make sense of these shootings. And so that ends up being our coverage, um, second day coverage after the Las Vegas shooting is the NRA story um, is segment one and the conversation with the gun store owner is segment two, and that was turned around in a day. So, you know, a conversation like that with John, we probably put as much time into crafting these questions in advance as we did to editing the, the interview afterward, which at the end of the day is a relatively straightforward two-way, right? But because of the way the thought that's been put into the questions up front, it, it, it takes us on a journey. Um, and if and you see a daily producer named Ike Sreeskandaraja around here today, he won a Third Coast Award and he'll be giving it tonight. You, you can thank him for finding John Markell because the first nine gun store owners said no to us. <laughs> um, but John said yes. Um, yes. Thank you, Ike. Um, okay, so one more story. Um, and this one, you know, on the spectrum of, of narrative to news, um, we've been talking more about news with John Schmidt, I mean Mike Schmidt, um, and, the, and the Comey memos, and, and with um, the, the, the Las Vegas attacks. But we also um, have plenty of stories that, that fall much further along the, um, the spectrum toward narrative. And this, this, um, this is a story that appeared in the Times in print in, in October. And it was a story about an incident that was not super um, high profile because it, had, um, it, was, it happened in Portland, Oregon. And while very, like, you know, while very upsetting, uh, nobody was badly injured in this attack. A, a Marine had swung a chair at a, a waiter in an Iraqi restaurant. And the, the news that had come out of that in the early days had been hate crime, hate crime, hate crime, hate crime. Um, and this reporter, Dave Phillips, had realized, well, it's a slightly more complicated story than that. The man who swung the chair, uh, this Marine, had served four tours in Iraq and had been diagnosed with PTSD, had found himself, who knows why, in an Iraqi restaurant that night. And um, this, this, this horrible thing happens. And so the way that the print story unfolded, which was beautifully written, um, is, is right away up top, I mean, it's in the headline, a Marine attacked an Iraqi restaurant. Was it a hate crime or PTSD? That's sort of grappling with like, what should we call this? But what became interesting to us was that like, the, the, the nature of this story is that things are more complicated than they seem. The nature of the story is um, the, the first blush look at this story is, is, is really not the story. And so how do you, how do you with, with knowing that to be true, how do you structure a narrative? And what we came up with was this idea that, that the surveillance camera had shown 
a man who looked like a skinhead, a man with a shaved head and a hoodie on coming into a restaurant and swinging a chair. And so that's what the headlines had, sh had said the next day. Everything, you know, surveillance videos show, and, and, and the, 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 the quick reaction news story was, you know, this looks like a, like an act, you know, a white nationalist sort of act. And Portland, Oregon had been, had experienced a few of these acts. There was a lot of, there was a lot of tension in the city, a feeling of, of like, we have to come down hard on these sorts of things because why is this happening in our city? And so there was swift movement to come down hard to call it a hate crime, but the story's more complicated. And so we, that's, that's how we decided to structure this is let's, let's live in that moment where people think this is one thing for as long as it makes sense. So let's set this up in such a way that the whole thing is from the perspective of the surveillance video and the Iraqi restaurant owner in the early days of this attack. And so here's how we start. Dave, describe for me what we see on the surveillance video from this restaurant, Dar Salaam, on the night of April 25th. It's a busy night at the restaurant, and you can see on the surveillance video that that a man with a shaved head walks in with a friend and takes a seat in the middle of the restaurant. People around him are all eating, and he doesn't order. He sits there. He looks around at photos of Iraq that are covering the walls. You see the waiter come up and ask again and again if, if they can help him. Mm -hmm. And then after about a half hour, he and his friend get up, and, and the man with the shaved head is, is looking around, trying to leave, maybe a little nervous, his hands jammed in his pockets. And then really without warning, he picks up a chair. You can see him slightly test it for weight, and he swings it as hard as he can into the waiter's head. Wow. A customer goes on the attack at an Iraqi restaurant in North Portland. An employee was hit over the head with a chair. The owners of Dar Salaam say two men were in the restaurant for about an hour, at times yelling racial slurs at staff, when one seen on the right picks up a chair and hits a waiter so hard, it left the server with a bruised shoulder. You can see the melee. After what happens in the restaurant, right away, Jaith Saheb, the owner of the restaurant, gets a call from his sister saying, you've got to come down, there's been an attack. I get a phone call from my sister and cry and yelling, screaming to me, Jay, somebody attacked us. He rushes down. I left my car, like, running, you know, uh, the doors open. In, in the parking lot? Yeah, I, I was really worried. And then when I get close to the restaurant, I say, like, uh, Tables are broken, uh, glasses everywhere, police everywhere. Wow. And I really, I didn't understand what happened that night. So one thing that's uh, worth noting is, is the, the person who wrote this story, again, this bears no resemblance to the story he wrote, but of course he knows all of this information. And so there's no reason why you can't sort of change the form in which the story is presented if somebody knows that information. They have to be game and they have to be willing to go on that journey with you and sort of agree with the premise that that's an appropriate way to structure the story that they sort of hold the, the keys to and the information about. But, but, but he does. And, he, and it's sort of what, what in audio, what is, the, what is this medium? How does this story want to be told in this medium? How does this story want to be told as a, tr as a true narrative? And in this case, um, it, 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 was, it was quite different than the story that appeared in print. Sometimes, sometimes we, we, we like the structure as is and we more or less play within that, but sometimes we, we, we just completely mess it up because, um, because of this, this sort of pursuit of the narrative inside of it. And so what, what goes on for the next you know, 10 or so minutes is that we, we follow this restaurant owner back to Iraq and he tells the story 
of having been involved in a um, car bombing that left him, I think, pretty much in a coma, bedridden for for a couple of months. He became incredibly depressed. Ultimately, it leads to his leaving Baghdad, coming to Portland, getting married, moving to Portland, and sort of this process by which of healing, by which he opens Dar Salaam, this House of Peace restaurant. Um, Iraqi restaurant in Portland where that comes to be embraced by the people of Portland and you come you have this incredibly powerful sense I think by the end of the segment that this n the, nothing more horrible could have happened to this particular man because we learn what's happened to him we learn the, over the course of you know going on this journey with him back to Iraq and, and, and taking a step back and, and then returning to the restaurant and then to the night of the crime we learn just how powerfully unsettling that would be for this particular man and then we get to the end of Act One. We've, we've, we've come back to the moment of the crime after going back to, to Baghdad with this man. And this is where we take the turn. So that's where it gets kind of interesting. The man, you know, he, he's wearing a hoodie. He's muscular. He's got a shaved head. I think a lot of people at the restaurant might have thought that he was some, some skinhead, essentially. Uh, in fact, he's a career sergeant major in the United States Marine Corps, uh, a 40-year-old guy named Damian Rodriguez who had done mm. four deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's what really caught my attention. Here's mm. this guy with this long history of, of exposure to combat coming into an Iraqi restaurant and attacking the waiter. To what extent was this a hate crime and to what extent was it a wound of war? Mm. We'll be right back. So this obviously is far more complicated than the other stories we've been talking about, and I think it resembles a scripted narrative. But once again, these are just people telling their stories to Michael. And so the story elements of this particular story are, you know, if you were to say that the, the conversation, the, the, the set of questions that we showed of, of Michael's conversation with John, the gun store owner, he basically did that four times for this story, right? There's a set of questions for Michael and the reporter, Dave Phillips. There's a set of questions for Michael and the restaurant owner. There's a set of questions for Michael and the veteran's mother. And there's a set of question for, questions for Michael and the veteran's platoon mate. We'll hear from the mother and the platoon mate in a second. But basically, each one of those, you need, we needed to know in advance, what is it that we need, uh, what journey are we going on with this particular person inside this story, so that when we bring them all together, we can weave together this narrative that is still a series of conversations. And so it, part of the significance of, of um, Dave Phillips is to tie all that together, right? He's the one who's got the whole story. So the way that we, that we did this is that Michael spoke to the three characters in the story before speaking to Dave Phillips so that we then structure a conversation for Dave that knows all of the beats that we're going to hit and we know like here's where we're going to go with, you know, this is when we're going to return to Baghdad, so this is what we need to hear from you. This is how, so it's a lot of actually stage management of, 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 of the voice in that case. And it's like knowing who you can do that with and who you can't do that with. You can't do that with a real person, right? You're not going to ask them to perform for you. You're not going to ask them to retake something to sound the way you want. Those conversations, the beauty of those is that if you write the questions, you know, if you, with enough thought put into those questions, hopefully you get this mix of the journey you want to go on and also a lot of surprises and, and beauty along the way. And with the, with the reporter, with the voice, you can get a little bit more stage managing and, and, and sort of get closer to asking somebody for the script that you would have written for a story like this, right? To stop and start and, and say like, 
can I get you to actually say the date? Can I get you to go back and say like on March 17th because I'm going to need that? And so there are all these ways of upfront getting this material that it sort of feels like a miracle when it all comes together that, that you've been able to do that in a couple of days. But if you know the story you want to tell and, you, and that's how you set out on the journey, it's sort of, it's amazing how much you can accomplish in these conversations. And just a small point, because people I think are curious how we can do something like this with the daily schedule. The answer is um, that we wouldn't do all these in one day. I, I would do one of these interviews a day, probably for three days or so. Each of them might take 90 minutes. Some of them, as I recall, took closer to two hours. And we finish them, and there's a dedicated producer who is focused on this episode and is working with Lisa, an editor, to really make it all come together over a week or so, which is still a pretty remarkable turnaround time for something like this, but I don't want you to think that we turn this around in a day. Right, right. Um, and, and then the, the sort of the extra elements on this, of course, are, are, are newsreel and the use of scoring throughout. So the, the sort of breakdown of a, of, a, of a story like this is several interviews, um, news, newsreel, and, and scoring. And, um, and so then in act two, um, we, we, you see the coming together of all of these conversations, of everything that we've, we've collected, and the sort of reveal of the second half of this story. So after having heard one man's experience in Iraq, we hear the other man's. This is the Marine's mother, who um, on the phone with Michael volunteered to him that she happened to have letters that the, that the Marine had written to her from his time there. And so we ended up with this um, surprise of, of her being able to sort of give his story in his own words through, the, through reading these letters. Yesterday on patrol, we had about 100 kids following us. Well, things are going good. I just wish I could have a beer. Right back, love, Damien. This is about a week before everything happened. And on a spring day, April 6, 2004, Damien Rodriguez takes a squad of about a dozen Marines out on a foot patrol. So we set out from the combat outpost. As we're moving through and leaving, we realize these streets that normally have kids throwing rocks at us were very empty. And this is about 11 a.m., hmm. something like that. They're so that's strange. Yeah, very strange. You always hear veterans, Vietnam vets, people like that say, you know it's going to be bad when it's quiet. Hmm. What he didn't know is that there was this vast coordinated attack by insurgents about to happen citywide. And they round a corner walking down the sidewalk of an urban boulevard and, and fire just erupts from everywhere. They opened up on us in a 360 degree ambush. Windows, rooftops, alleys. I can feel the rounds cracking around me. I can feel in here, I can feel the air. I can feel, I can see them hitting all around me. I felt and heard a really loud pop and then a very warm feeling all over my mm. face because I was shot in the face, right behind my right ear. It severed the external carotid artery. I should have been dead immediately. It was pouring blood out. Rodriguez takes the guys that he can get together and he, he holds up in a house and sort of tries to take stock. Mm. He's got two Marines already dead in the street and he can't get to the bodies because there's too much fire going on. Remember, he's in charge, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot he can do. Hmm. They're running low on ammo. He's got his hand pressed against the neck of another private who has been shot through the neck. 
and really all he can do is, is keep shooting. He was cracking jokes with me, just trying to help me stay calm, which I was. And, when, and so, when, what, what kind of joke could anyone, let alone your platoon leader, make at that moment to make you feel better when you're, you've been shot in the face and you're bleeding like that? Um, well, there was a couple of them. One of it was just, hey, you're going to be in Germany in no time hanging out with the nurses. What are you complaining about? You know, hmm. just give me a hard time. And then um, they used to joke with me that I had a big nose. And they said, hey, you just took a little bit off the tip, you know, <laughs> stuff like that up the nose. And so over the radio comes a report that that the other group that was split off by them has just been hit by a grenade. And they've got two guys down. They're still taking fire. He's called for reinforcements, but they can't get there because the, the whole city is, is essentially a repeat of this whole scene. There's fighting going on all over the place. We finally were medevaced out of there, or I was. They showed up in the Humvees, and he looked back at me and said, can you walk? And I gave him a thumbs up. Ran out there. He helped me get in the Humvee. Marines are killed. We've lost some of our friends, our brothers. There wasn't much of us left. Hi, Mom. Well, as you know, we're out of the city and sort of in a safe place. My platoon and I have just been relaxing, eating, and exercising. We've also been going to a lot of post-traumatic stress classes with the chaplain. It's one of those mandatory things. But it's good since my platoon have been through a lot of stuff. Keep up the prayers for us, and we should be home safe and sound. I look forward to seeing you. Love, Damien. So this started right as a news story about this incident in Portland um, involving this Marine in this Iraqi restaurant. And like 17 minutes into the show, we have learned what happened to him through the words of the people who know him. And we've gotten an idea of, this, of, of one of the more traumatic incidents that he experienced there, culminating in his telling his mom, you know, we're going through PTSD treatment. I think that's good. And so we've, we've totally reframed this story, this new story, into a long, expansive um, narrative that, that, you know, in two parts tells the story of these two men involved in the words of, 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 of in, in, some, in, in, some, in the case of the restaurant owner, in his own words, in the case of, of the veteran, um, in his mother and his platoon mate's words, and then, and then we've used this reporter um, to stitch it all together, and uh, ultimately, we thought, told a, a, a more nuanced and complex version of the story. Um, and so that's, that's sort of where we landed, is what have we learned in all of this somewhat by accident, by finding ourselves in this situation at this organization um, with a group of reporters who, you know, who have no training in scripted narrative, and yet who we felt this, this, this um, mission inside of this organization at this moment to apply those, those lessons of narrative to, to the stories that we're telling. And it's that by applying some of these principles, we're trying to, not, to explore not just what happened, but why and how. Trying to tell a story and, to, to importantly, to have a complete thought. At a moment like this, it feels especially meaningful to us to apply those principles to the most urgent stories of our time, to, to take the lessons of narrative that we've all, that we've all honed and apply them to, the, to these stories that feel most urgent in this moment. And we can all do it. It boils down to having thoughtful conversations and relentlessly pursuing the ideas, questions, and stories that you genuinely want to understand.
That was Lisa Tobin speaking at the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Listen to more great sessions like this one on the Third Coast Pocket Conference podcast.